When I was first asked to go and speak in Monkstown, I didn't know where it was either. So uh, I can't say very much. But for once I got there, I discovered that it was Monkstown, near Abbott's Cross, near White Abbey. So it certainly had a very Catholic feel about it. And yet when I arrived, it's one of the most loyalist places you could be. And of course, I was coming from Kilray, which was a predominantly nationalist town. So I just seemed to swing from one extreme to the other. But uh, it's amazing how uh, one of your, maybe your first pastor, uh, David Scott, said to me going into the ministry, he says, you know, the Lord will give you a love for the people and the place. And that's true. And it very quickly becomes home. And uh, that has always happened uh, as the Lord has moved me from place to place. But lovely to be back with you here in Saintfield. And uh, maybe we could turn to Isaiah's prophecy and chapter 42, just for a few verses uh, to give us a kind of a text for our, our message. But uh, we will look at other scriptures as time goes on. But Isaiah chapter 42, and this morning I would want us to take a look at the perfect servant. Take a look at the perfect servant if you want a title. And that's how the passage begins. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. And I just want to read those first few verses together to get that phrase, really. Behold my servant. Take a look at the perfect servant. Of course, that servant that was being spoken of by Isaiah all those centuries before Jesus came was Jesus. Jesus the Messiah of Israel, Jesus the Saviour of the world. And we could look at any number of incidents in the life of Jesus and we could see his serving attitude, we could see his serving heart and we could look at many things that would challenge us and exhort us as we attempt to follow him as the Lord's servants, as his servants. But this morning I'd like just to focus on one event, a very, very dark event. For Jesus, a very trying and painful event. But it's an event that I think displays the perfect servitude of Jesus. And that event was the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that place where he came under immense stress to the point of sweating blood, as you know. And yet, amazingly, as he's being arrested, he performs two very significant miracles. Even though everything is being hurled at him, he performs two very significant miracles. He continues to be the perfect servant right to the end. And those two miracles are very rarely talked about. I don't believe in all of my time as sitting under many, many, many good men. I ever heard anyone preaching these two miracles together. But they are the miraculous sudden collapse 
of those who came to arrest Jesus and also the miraculous healing of Malchus' severed or detached ear. And these events we read about in John chapter 18. Now they're covered over four gospels, but John's is the one that that gives us the most detail. And from John 18 and verse 1 we read, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. So he's heading away from Jerusalem and he's heading towards the Mount of Olives and the place we know as Gethsemane. Verse 2 of John 18, And Judas also which betrayed him knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth or stepped forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. What a strange occurrence. And John makes something very clear in verse 6. He links the collapse of these men with the words, I am he. Jesus had earlier asked a simple question, who are you looking for? But now at this moment with these words, I am he, this miracle happens. And yes, it is a miracle, because what is a miracle? A miracle is an extraordinary event that can't be explained by natural or scientific laws, and therefore it must be attributed to a divine agency. And that's what we have here. There was no blinding flash of lightning. There was no earthquake. It was a miracle. And it shows the control that Jesus had even as he's yielding himself to these wicked men who had come to take him away by force and would eventually crucify him. And as we've just read, he knew that all of these things were going to happen. But it shows that he still has control. Amazing, isn't it? That at the sound of Jesus' answer, a whole company of fit and fearless guards fell like dominoes before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But then we shouldn't really be surprised, we who know the book, because of course Jesus was no ordinary man. He was fully man, and, and we see that most definitely in his suffering on the cross. But he was still God revealed in human form, God manifest in flesh. And He is the the God who was in the beginning with God. He was there at creation. And we know that creation was spoken into being. And God said. And God said. So we can even go to that and, and, and think of the power that's in his words. But if we weren't connecting that up, we could still see the power of his words in his earthly ministry. Mark 4 gives us the story of Jesus calming the storm 
And in verse 39 of Mark 4, we read this. He arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. We saw the power of his words again whenever he stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus. John 11 records this for us from the end of verse 43. And we read that he cried with a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. Jesus himself talked about a future day. And mentioned the power of his voice and of his words in a day yet to come. Because he said this in John 5. Marvel not, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Just stop there for a wee minute. Is there somebody here today and you're not seeing? There is a resurrection to life and a resurrection to damnation. Think about that. But it isn't only the Lord's voice that is powerful. His presence is also powerful. Because those men in Gethsemane weren't the first to fall down at the presence of God. Way back in Genesis in chapter 17, God spoke to a man called Abraham. And he says, I am the almighty God. And then we read this, Abraham fell on his face. Matthew 17, when God's glory was manifested in the transfiguration of Jesus, Peter, James and John all collapsed to the ground. In Revelation 1, John the Apostle was being given that Wonderful revelation unveiling. And it's the unveiling of Jesus. And he's given a vision of Jesus right at the beginning of that book. And John falls at Jesus' feet. These encounters with God were very real. We might call them close encounters because it was God coming very close to man. It filled them with awe, with wonder, but it also filled them with holy fear. It overwhelmed them. They literally went weak at the knees and they couldn't remain standing in the presence of such majesty and glory. But there is a a difference I'm sure you've picked up. Those events in the life of Abraham and in the life of the disciples and John and Patmos, they fell before They fell on their face. Here in Gethsemane, they fall backwards. The other men who wanted to know God in that deeper and real way, the the other men who were given these glimpses of God's majesty as believers, it transformed them. But here's the sad, sad thing about this story. All of these arresting people, when they fell backward at the presence and at the voice of Jesus, they recovered. And as soon as they recovered, they picked up where they left off in their evil plan. 
to take Jesus by force and lead him away. This miracle shows me that even at that point, Jesus could have walked away. He could have walked away. Weren't there other times when Jesus seemed to vanish into thin air as his persecutors were attempting to take him? We read of one in John 10 from verse 39. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized and there he abode. He just escaped, vanished. Jesus has the ability to avoid capture if he so desires, but there in John 10 was one of the occasions where he did that. He evaded capture. Luke 10 from verse 38 says this, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust Jesus out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill whereon the city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. He just passed through them. Why did Jesus escape in that way? On those occasions, he could have done it in Gethsemane, but he doesn't do it now. Well, I believe John 12, in Jesus' own words, gives us the answer. From verse 23 of John 12, we read this. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul trouble. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven, heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus refers to the time of his death, his sacrificial death, his substitutionary death, his atoning death, as they are. On those other occasions, they are hadn't come. But now they are has come. And yet he shows that he could have. He could have done anything. The power that was available to him in Gethsemane. But as the perfect servant, he knew what he must do. He kept to the divine brief at all times. Even in the face of, of the betrayal of Judas. Even facing the heavy-handedness of this arresting mob, he continues with the plan. He had you and I in mind. Then we read further in John chapter 18, uh, telling us what happened in Gethsemane from verse 7. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, 
that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? There he is, staying with the plan. And verse 12 says, Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. Peter, what are you doing? Well, in some ways, I suppose it's no surprise that uh, Peter reacted in a a reckless way because there was a lot going on. And it's in the darkness of night, of course. And this band comes with, with all of these torches, lanterns, and weapons. And Peter sees that they're attempting now to take Jesus and to to tie him up. And this is the same night where Peter and the others have dozed off a number of times. Even though Jesus explicitly said to them, watch and pray. I would imagine that Peter and the others were already stressed, already quite exhausted. And now all of this is happening. And as they are aroused out of their sleep and as Jesus steps forward and this sizable, heavy-handed military presence is on the scene. Peter just reacts badly. He reacts without thinking. No doubt his reaction is genuine and comes from a heart of concern for Jesus. And possibly he too was confused Here's Judas. What's going on? But Jesus says to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Matthew 26. Just a wee thought at this point. One day Peter would know and learn how to use a better sword. On the day of Pentecost, he takes up the sword of the Spirit, as Paul describes it, the Word of God. We need to go to Luke's account of these details for what happens after Peter cuts the right ear off. And in Luke 22 from verse 50 we read, And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. We know that's Peter. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now in verse 12 of John 18, we have just been reading the process, the group that descended on the scene. And Jesus said, Suffer ye thus far, according to Luke's account. And I believe that's where Jesus is in the process of having his hands bound. And he says, look, don't wrap that round anymore. Don't continue tying that just just for one moment. Because he knew that once his hands would be bound, they would remain bound until they were nailed to the cross. He would be dragged from, I suppose we could say, court to court. Trial to trial, Herod, Caiaphas, Pilate. 
And here's a moment, a moment where he could say, look, suffer ye thus far. Don't do it anymore because he had something to do. He had one last thing to do while his hands were free. And he touches Malchus' head where Peter had severed the ear. I'm sure that was a mess. And he touches Malchus' head and he is instantly healed. What a strange healing. What a strange miracle. These are two very strange miracles that were performed that night. But they display, even in the arrest of Jesus, that he meant what he said when he prayed. Not my will, but thine be done. His words in prayer to his father were sincerely meant, and now his loving actions show that he's determined to willingly give his back to the smiters. It shows that he has this miraculous power even at that moment. It shows also the great restraint of Jesus in allowing wicked hands to even touch him. And even when bound, Jesus could have immediately burst those ties. Think of the power that was given to Samson in the Old Testament. But Jesus stayed with the plan. Here's how Matthew describes the scene. Matthew 26 and 52. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled? That thus it must be. In that same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Is it any wonder the hymn writer penned that beautiful song? He could have called 10,000 angels. And how does it start? They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. Whenever we think of Jesus in those moments, his last seconds, if you like, where his hands would be free, if that was a privilege we were given, if we were going to be martyred or or something like that, what we would do with the last seconds that our hands were free and Jesus heals Jesus touches two miracles at any other time they would have caused a great stir at any other time they would have made the observers think well could this be the Messiah At any other time, they may even have produced faith in some of the onlookers. But on this particular night, these miracles 
are overtaken by the rest of the events, the events that would follow and would lead to the crucifixion of the Savior. You know, miracles are wonderful. But they pale into insignificance when they are placed alongside the necessity of the cross. I remember hearing of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, I believe they might have called it outreach, a particular group of people in Coleraine. And they had a sign up. And it didn't say anything like the verse we shared with the children earlier or God so loved the world. It didn't mention that. There was no preaching. There was no giving out of gospel tracts. The sign said, healing's here at three o'clock. And their whole thing was healing. And yet here we have these two incidents tucked in. And as I've said to you before, how often are they preached on? Because those events are really only to be seen in the shadow of the amazing events that would follow. The greater thing is to know why Jesus went to the cross. The greater thing is to know that we needed a saviour. Malchus' healing was interesting on a number of levels. He had only been afflicted for a few seconds. We know of other people in the word of God who were afflicted for 18, 12 years, 30 years. He didn't ask for healing. He didn't exercise any faith in Jesus. In fact, we read of him again on one of the times that Peter denies the Lord. And yet here it is, a miracle. So what's being said here? Well, it's possible that the Lord is showing us something in these miracles and saying something to us through these miracles. And I think it has to do with the idea of what it means to be a servant because our text at the beginning was, behold, take a look at the perfect servant. And the theme of servant and servanthood comes through in this. Malchus was the servant of the high priest. Peter was supposed to be a servant of Jesus as a disciple. Judas turned out to be a servant of the devil. We have many servants mentioned here. The band of, of, of guards were also serving the temple. All of these people were there because they were serving somebody or other. Who are you serving today? Who are you serving today? Are you serving Jesus? Do you want to be like him? Behold, my servant, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. Do you know what the simplest definition of holiness is? Pleasing God. Pleasing God. You live a life to please God, that's holiness. Are we servants of the living God? Are we servants of Jesus? Are we following Jesus? If we're his, we should be following him. Well, he was the perfect servant. 
Malchus and the other officers who were serving the religious establishment. They were acting in an anti-God and anti-Messiah way, anti-Christ way. So when Jesus demonstrates his power over them, he's letting them know the seriousness of what they're about to do in binding him and arresting him. But at the same time, he's showing that he is willingly yielding to them for the purpose of his greatest work, being put to death as God's lamb. Even the angels in this story, who are they ministering spirits? Servants of the Lord of hosts. It's everywhere you look in this story. And then we have the perfect servant. What kind of servant am I? That's the challenge to me. And then let's go a wee bit further. What kind of servant am I under stress? Wasn't Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What kind of servant am I in dark times? Didn't they come in the darkness of night? Are you going through a dark time? Oh, I've witnessed so many folks in church life and when they go through a dark time, they seem to just abandon all service. And I admire those who I've known who going through a dark time have kept on. What kind of servant am I when I'm alone? The disciples forsook him and fled. What kind of servant am I when it's possible to take an easy route? What kind of servant am I when I'm surrounded by the oppressors? And that's the kind of world that we are going to be in if things keep going as they are at the minute. And here's how I want to finish. There's a wee chorus that goes like this. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. All through life's journey from earth to glory. All I ask is to be like him. He was the perfect servant. May the Lord bless these thoughts to your hearts for his name's sake. We're going to use the words of 554 in the book. It's nearer, still nearer, close to thy heart, and we stand to sing.